Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Uh, you may remember that McMaster, for example, recently, back in, well, January 1st, not so recently, seems like recently, but January 1st put a new policy in place banning smoking of anything, tobacco or anything else, on any part of campus. You can't even be in the parking garage in your car and smoke anything on McMaster campus. Uh, City of Hamilton has bans in public parks and other public places. You can't smoke even if you're outdoors. Uh, restaurants, bars, stores, theaters, arenas, basically anywhere that's public, not allowed to smoke anything. Well, that leaves you with your home for many people being your only place, your only sanctuary. If you're a smoker, whether it's tobacco or whether it's marijuana, your home will be the one place where you're allowed to do this. Maybe. And here's where it gets a little strange. Because many condo boards are apparently working feverishly ahead of these new laws coming in that will allow cannabis. They are working to put rules in place that would ban smoking cannabis in your unit. Now this is, and many of them have already done this with tobacco. This is now a new thing. Uh, Let me bring in uh, Denise Lash. She's a lawyer. She's founder of Lash Condo Law. She's an expert in all things to do with the law around condominiums. Uh, She joins us now. Denise, thanks for doing this today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I am, I must say, when I start, when I read this story today and I was following up on this, I was a little surprised that condo boards could actually ban you from doing certain things within your own unit. Should I be surprised by that? Uh, yes, you should be, because uh, this was not the norm a few years back. It is only more recent because of the health concerns and some of the other nuisance factors that boards are taking that approach. Because I uh, certainly an apartment, I understand if an apartment owner, a superintendent, a landlord put rules in place because that's their property. I'm renting from them, but that's their property. But if I buy my condo, it's mine. And my thought is, well, I should be able to do in my bought home what I want to do. And, and that's true. But if it does interfere or affect somebody else, and it can, believe me, we've been dealing with a lot of nuisance issues on smoking and odors between units then the board has an obligation to take steps. And keep in mind that when a board takes those steps to pass rules, it is circulated to the owners. So the owners do have an opportunity to call a meeting themselves and to vote against the rules. So, okay, this is where this gets really interesting because you mentioned in that answer that anything that would affect somebody else, how far could you go to do that? Because smoking, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, of course, I don't want smoke drifting into my apartment or my condo. How far could you actually take that? Well, with cannabis, um, the big issue is the cultivation. So uh, the growing and, and the effects that it can have, and I've been told that these marijuana plants can get huge, and so imagine four of these huge plants within a condo unit, the moisture, the odor. So that is something that I think that most condominium corporations are doing to try to control that. And that will impact. You will smell that in the hallways. The moisture, the dampness, the, the rot almost. The, the marijuana plant itself. Hmm. You know, I've learned a lot about marijuana the past <laughs> six months. You know, many years ago, yes, you know, we, we used to smoke it. But, you know, now... Now you just study like, it. Well, now we study it. And, and it, it does have an impact. And then, you know, there are those that need it for medicinal uses. And that is where condominium corporations are including a medical exemption. 
either in the rules or they'll deal with it when somebody comes forward with that medical reason. And then the question becomes, do they need to smoke it or can they ingest it? Because the condominium corporation won't have rules that deal with, you know, what you can ingest. It's really just the smoking, anything that interferes with other people. The the idea that can can someone is anybody talking about grandfathering this? So if I and again if I had bought a condo years ago before someone put a no smoking a blanket no smoking policy in and I was a two pack a day smoker and I now own my condo could I ever have got a grandfather exemption and could you do the same with this? Yes, well that's exactly what condominium corporations are doing. So the ones that are saying we're going to use this opportunity to go non smoking in the entire building. So no units, no common areas, whether it's tobacco or it's uh, marijuana, they're treating them the same way. However, as you said, if there's a smoker in the unit and they, you know, they have a right, they purchase their unit, you can't just pass a rule that will affect them to that extent, then they are grandfathered. And those, that grandfathering is included in, the, in most rules. So if you're an existing smoker, then you're grandfathered. But if your grandfather doesn't mean that people can visit you and start smoking. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, how are we going to... How are you, you know, going to know? I know. How will we know? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Denise Lash, who is a lawyer with an expertise in condo law about condo boards that are putting in laws very quickly, trying to put in bylaws, rules that would ban pot smoking now that it's going to become legal in this country. Um, then it would, just before the break, Denise, we were chatting about grandfathering people in. I can understand that's an okay one. If you're a tobacco smoker, it would be a tricky one. If you said, I am not for any kind of medicinal reason, I'm just a recreational pot smoker who should be grandfathered in. Cause I've been smoking it for years. Cause by then you're just admitting you broke the law forever. Well, see, that's the reason why condominium corporations and boards are rushing to get these rules in place. Because marijuana, cannabis, is not legal at the moment, unless it's for medicinal purposes. So rules that grandfather will only grandfather tobacco smokers. And as long as it's done and in place before October 17th when it becomes legal. So if condominium corporations and their boards wait till after October 17th, then you're correct. Then people are going to come forward saying, I'm an existing smoker. I'm an existing marijuana smoker. So you need to grandfather me. So, so the people who live in condos who are listening right now, if they want the pot to be banned, if they want cannabis to be banned, you better do it fast. And if you're someone who smokes the stuff, you got to find a way to stall the board meeting until after October 22nd so you can keep well, this going. Well, you know what? We don't want to say that now, <laughs> do we? <laughs> they get the idea. Um, how far, and again, we talked about this a little bit, how far can condo boards go? Because there are other things that different condos, certain condos are going to uh, have rules about a lot of places say you can't have a pet of any kind, or you can't have Christmas trees, or you can't have a barbecue on the porch, or there's noise limits. Can condos, do, do the condo boards generally have the right, could they ever say, we want to inspect your unit because we've put a rule in and we want to make sure you're not breaking that rule? Well, it will depend if there are bylaws. And of course you have a rules and you have bylaws and you have a declaration, you have the Condominium Act, and they all cover different things. 
So something like entering into a unit, there's certain rights that a condominium corporation has under the Condominium Act to enter a unit. It's for the purposes of carrying out the objects. And sometimes the bylaws go further to give boards further rights to enter units. So yes, you know, when a unit owner is not in compliance, there's certain authority that the board has that the condo manager with the security can go in there and check. Do they have to have, is it kind of like a police inspection? Do they have to have just cause? If I had a cat and there was a no pet rule and no one knew I had a cat, could they do a building-wide check to make sure nobody had a cat? No, usually not. But what will happen is, and the way you discover noncompliance is, you know, there are certain inspections, fire inspections. And when you get in Mm. for a fire inspection, uh, lo and behold, there's a cat or a, Mm -hmm. a dog. So there are ways, there are workarounds. What about, okay, so right off the top, you mentioned again with the smoking, with the pot smoking, part of this is people, there's the growing, which is a problem, but people also don't want in the neighboring unit, they don't want the smells, they don't want the smoke coming into their unit. And I think most people, many people can certainly understand that. Can that go further? Could you as a condo ban somebody from cooking with certain spices that are very pungent that would drift Mm -hmm. into your condo? Is that, can you do that? Uh, most condominium either declarations or rules deal with the nuisance and they focus on noise and odors. And so, yes, and, and I've had issues. You know, we've had compliance letters, which is, uh, you know, a letter sent when someone doesn't comply with the rules, um, saying you've got to stop cooking that smelly odor. <laughs> yeah. How to be, how to make great friends with your neighbors. Well, then, you know, somebody will launch a human rights uh, application, you know, claiming that they're being discriminated against because of their ethnicity, mm. and the kind of food that, you know, so it, it's not easy. Well, and this, this whole thing gets interesting because oftentimes, correct me if I'm wrong, but oftentimes, most often maybe, condo boards are a government of the residents. And so it is residents who are putting these rules in and governing other residents. So you're, you're, you're basically being told what is acceptable within your private social ecosystem almost. And if you go against the rules, you're essentially going against your neighbors. Well, that's just it. It's a community and the, the owners have a right to elect their board. So they're electing a board and what they're giving the authority of the board to do is to decide what rules they want. And the board will say, I think these are good rules for our community. And then there's a mechanism for owners to object to it. So, you know, and you're weighing the interests of so many different mm-hmm. people. It's, there's always conflict. Do these, things ev- do these things ever end up in court? If someone doesn't like a rule, where, I mean, and, and they really can't get an answer, how often do they get to court? Uh, they get to court. They get to arbitration. Uh, we, you know, on the, we always have all these on the go all the time. Yeah, we have, you know, when we're dealing now with short-term tendencies and people listing on Airbnb or other short-term rental providers, mm. So constant noncompliance, and a lot has to do with owners. Uh, most of the time, owners are not aware of the rules. They don't read the documents, and I don't, I don't blame them because, you know, there are hundreds of pages. That's the problem. Until they break one, and then somebody's going to be at the door. There's always one, right? There's always right. one. Uh, Denise Lash, lawyer, a founder of Lash Condo Law. You can find her online. If you have a condo unit, if you have an issue, eh, she's the person to talk to. Denise, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Okay, thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Will, what would be the worst, the worst possible thing that could happen to, per- to a person 
enjoying a day at the beach? What do you think could be the worst thing? I mean, like, let your mind run wild. What would be the worst thing in a day at the beach that could happen to you? Three-headed shark attack. Well, that would be pretty bad. That would be, uh, not only would it be the shark attack, but also you would assume now that there has been some sort of nuclear meltdown nearby, Mm -hmm. so you're Mm -hmm. getting hit twice. That would be very bad. But yeah, a shark attack. um, I, I know someone who a bird pooped right in their mouth once. Yeah, and and by the way, when I say the okay, when I say the worst possible thing, I mean short of death. Short okay? of death. Short okay, short of de- short of death. Uh, yes, the bird pooping. I remember that the story about that one time where a guy was walking along the beach and a seagull flew overhead and plopped on his head, and the person next to him said, "Oh, well, I'll get you some toilet paper." And he goes, "Oh, don't worry, he's miles away by now." <laughs> ba boom. <laughs> Um, yeah, that would be bad. Yeah, a bird pooping on your head on the beach, being attacked by a shark. Um, I'm trying to think what else would be. That old bully from the 1950s uh, comics comes up and kicks your sandcastle Yeah, and you haven't had your Charles Atlas workout yet, so yes. Isomorphic. Yeah, so you haven't, you're not able to fight him. I always love that, how times have changed that that then... The answer to a bully kicking sand in your face was to beat the snot out of him. <laughs> Get muscly, track him down, and exact revenge. Now we would say, either try and resolve it in amicable fashion, amicable fashion, or call the authorities and have him arrested. Or, or I kind of like sue the him. old way. I kind of yeah, or sue him. I like the old way better, quite honestly. Way simpler. Anyway, not that I was ever <laughs> ever able to beat up anybody, nor will I ever be able to. But I'm thinking, okay, these are all terrible, terrible things that could happen to you in a day at the beach. None of those you would want to have happen. I'm thinking terrible chafing in your bathing suit from sand would be a really bad one. An atrocious sunburn. If you fall asleep in the direct sunlight and you end up all, you wake up purple (laughs) with blisters, that would be really bad. But something happened to a British woman, Margaret Reynolds, 67 year old British woman that I got to say is I think right up there with the list of the worst possible things that could ever happen to you during a nice, fun, relaxing day at the beach. Uh-oh. Okay, she's in the States. She was in New Jersey, Seaside Heights on Jersey Shore. Uh, again, 67-year-old woman. She's lying there just enjoying the sun, enjoying the ocean breezes, watching the waves go by, blah, 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 all the things, who knows what else, playing with a beach ball, throwing a Frisbee. I don't know, she's 67. Maybe she still was, maybe she wasn't. But she's lying there. But it was a windy day. There was a lot of, there was wind, it's Jersey, it's not quite like Florida, it's New Jersey, and it was, you know, yeah, it was breezy. The umbrella, the beach umbrella, you know, the one you stick into the sand when Mm -hmm. you go... Your parasol. Your parasol, well, kind of, the big one though, the really big one. Oh, okay, the really, ooh. Uh, It was windy, and somehow the wind caught her umbrella, fired it up in the air, And then, and I don't know how this, but there are photos to prove this. I don't know how this happened. It shot back down at rocket speed and impaled her leg. Whoa. It went right through her leg into the sand. She was stuck to the beach. She was, she was the back end. She was playing catch the javelin with her leg and she lost. Yowza. They had to call the beach patrol, the police, the paramedics, everything else. Police spokesman, detective Steve Corman told the paper the spike was driven entirely through her leg due to the force of the wind. Oh my goodness. Fire crews, uh, borough police chief Tommy Boyd, who was on the scene said fire crews had to use a bolt cutter on the (laughs) aluminum umbrella to get it out of her leg. Yeah. Yeah. How bad is your day at the beach? 
when you are just having a good old time sipping on your lemonade and watching the seagulls and suddenly a killer umbrella <laughs> circling overhead dive bombs your leg and right through. I can think of some unfortunate beach events, but that, no, that is awful. That, that tops everything. That's worse than a bird. And now, and even worse, if it's possible is that we now live in the social media age. So yeah. everybody around, rather than getting to help her, mm-hmm. everyone goes and grabs their phone <laughs> so they can take pictures to post it on social media. That was my next question. How many selfies are there with her? Many. So oh. a guy named Ricky Zed, although he's in the States, so it was probably Ricky Z. <laughs> yes. Wrote something which I'm not allowed to say and then go, this lady had an <laughs> umbrella go through her leg five feet away from me. There was a strong gust of wind there were a couple other umbrellas flying. One of the corners, one one of the corners went through her bleep bleep and leg. That could have been me. Well, it's good that he's thinking of you know him for <laughs> himself first. Oh, I don't care. Thank goodness it wasn't me. It was only her that got impaled. Oh my goodness! Uh, the chief of the fire department said the steel part went right through her right ankle. The spoke oh. of the it went oh. right through her. We had to cut it out with bolt cutters. Yeah, this. This, we were talking about John Cleese uh, the other night. This sounds like a Monty Python routine. Almost. Almost. Yeah. It would be more funny if it was a Monty Python yes. thing. Because there would be less blood and <laughs> less surgical operation on the beach with bolt cutters. Arguably more blood, but yes. Uh, yeah, well, the, arguably, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I just, it, it is, uh, of all the things that I thought could do you damage at a beach. Wow. An umbrella, uh, just a languishing, shady umbrella. Seems like the least likely weapon, unless it was picked up by someone and run through you like a, a knight <laughs> in a jousting competition. Anyway, so I if you're at the beach this weekend, next week, whenever you're on holidays, make sure the umbrella is safely held down in place, especially if it's a windy day, because heaven forbid you end up as the victim of the flying umbrella of doom. I think I will take the sunburn. Take the sunburn, steer clear of the umbrellas, especially the sharpened ones. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Is Rick Zamperin down at Tim Hortons Field at this moment? That is 100% accurate. On site, doing his job up close and personal with the Hamilton Ticats football team. Uh, well, thanks for joining us, by the way. First of all, My because point. I know there are other things you could be doing, like dining at the exclusive, extravagant Ticat buffet in the media lounge. I, I can tell you I'm looking at the lineup, uh, half salivating, half not. At, at the food or at the lineup? No, at the lineup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, usually, I mean, most games, it is surf and turf that they do serve, along with a very nice red from something in the 50s. So uh, you may want to get there quickly because that lobster and, and sirloin is going to be gone quickly. As you said, hashtag extravagant. Yes, very extravagant. And if anyone <laughs> thinks we're actually telling the truth, we'll talk to you later. Uh, hey, sure. thanks for doing this today. Uh, Tie Cats are kicking off with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in, as I say, 20 minutes. Uh, that is interesting because Andy Fantuz, who played the first half of his career with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and the second half of his career with the Hamilton Ticats, announced his retirement today. Is he a Ticat great or a Rough Rider great? Good question. I think he would be more of a Rough Rider great for the simple fact that he managed to win a great cup with Saskatchewan and he was unable to do so with the Tiger Cats. Um, you could also make the argument that he had his best seasons as a rough rider, although, you know, I would be, 
I would be inclined to hear an argument that his best years were as a Tiger Cat. He, he put up some huge numbers in Hamilton, but then again, he put up some really magical numbers with Saskatchewan. I would give the nod to the Riders just because he's got a shiny trophy in his trophy case from Saskatchewan. You know, the guy who always comes to mind when I think about Andy Fantuz, and I'm trying to come with a comparable, and I don't know if it's fair, you may disagree, you may have someone else in mind, but the guy who always comes to mind for me is Dave Sapungis. And not just because both went to Western, but they were both uh, considered really great, some of the great Canadian slot, slot back slash receivers. Who do you have as a closer mix, a closer matcher? Would you put him in that category? I would definitely put him in that category because you look at those two individuals and they were more or less possession receivers. You needed a first down, you needed a clutch catch, you needed a touchdown, you needed to execute in the end zone uh, in the in the waning moments of a football game, and you needed a big play. You were looking to guys like Fantus, guys like Sponges, and and they would make the play more often than not, and that's what made them, uh, you know, elite level receivers in this game. They were. Uh, the targets, the defense knew they were getting the ball, and they still made the play. So, yeah, I think that's a perfect comparison. Is Andy Fantuz a great Canadian player, or is he a great player? I would say both, definitely a great Canadian player. I mean, you look at his statistics and where he ranks in terms of all-time Canadians, in terms of touchdowns, receptions, catches. Uh, he's right up there with the, the best of the Canadians. But I think you have to have him in the conversation as you know, one of the best all-around receivers in the CFL. He might not be at the top of the list or even in the top 10. I put him in the top 20 or 25. I think he had that kind of magical kind of presence on the field. Now, he wasn't going to you know, dazzle you with any uh, you know, supersonic speed, but he was a guy that just flat-out made plays, scored touchdowns, and was a guy you can count on when you know the chips were down. Yeah, and you know what? Another name of a guy that comes to mind just as you're describing that, because you just described, I think, Mike Morreale in a lot of ways. They, those guys sure, would be similar yeah. players. Definitely. You know, Paul Mazzotti would probably be in that, yep. in that conversation too, although Paul, I think, was a little more of a deep threat than any of the other guys. But still, you know, Canadian guys who were just you know solid on the field and even off the field, which is an important part of the equation too. But guys that you can just rely on. They were there. They were going to make the play. Uh, and, you know, they wouldn't, uh, you know, uh, celebrate over exuberantly. They were just, you know, they, they brought their lunch pail to the ball yard and they, they got the job done. I, I, I tend to believe you, I agree with you about um, Fantuz for much of the early part of his career, but all evening, especially I was watching CHCH, had it on in the studio, and all it was was touchdown celebrations of him hoofing the ball <laughs> into the stands and doing some sort of robot dance. And I think when he got to Hamilton somehow, he finished right. his, his uh, Chicago Bears tryout, came home and had learned something from the NFL guys because suddenly <laughs> he was no longer the automaton that he was in, in uh, right. Saskatchewan. I think his celebrations are rather benign when you compare them to, you know, others that uh, really have gone viral. And, you know, Dave Stalla. Uh, Stalla taught him something. Really, yeah, exactly. Who really, uh, I think, with that uh, that bicycle kick kind of uh, display <laughs> that he had, uh, really, I thought, you know, a, a bunch of eyes suddenly came on the Ticats receiving court to say, uh, hey, who can do something better than yeah, that? Yeah, top that. that. Probably at the top of the list, yeah. The, um, do you believe, and, and I know that uh, he had a press conference today, and I know that he's going to be honored, and uh, I believe in the first uh, after the first quarter today at the game. But Andy Fantuz had a he banged up his elbow a couple of years ago. He blew out his knee a little while ago. Do you think he wanted 
to retire, or do you think it was at the point where the Ticats said, no, you know, we just got no place for you and there's no other team in the league that could use a guy who had his injuries and had has his age? Was this a choice, or was this basically like so many other guys that you just couldn't find a place to play? Yeah, I, th- I think it's the latter. I think he came to the realization that you know he had a phenomenal career, but you know those injuries take a toll. Not getting any of, uh, any younger, father time usually you know claims the cup in that regard. I think it was just a matter of you know he he didn't fit in Hamilton and he wasn't going to fit in Toronto because they wanted to get younger and faster. Uh, as did the Ticats, obviously. When you look at a guy like Jalen Saunders, you know a young guy in his second season. Uh, a small individual, but has you know speed and then some you know speedy bees in that category too. Luke Castro, you might want to put him there too. But uh, I think the game kind of passed him by in terms of how much and uh, you know, how much he can execute on the field and how uh, you know how he could recover at, after each and every game because that's the big part of being a especially an older receiver is that recovery aspect is that when you get you know those bumps and bruises are you good to go for the next game? Do you have to keep uh, take a, a couple of weeks off, so that's uh, clearly a, a factor in his decision. Well, and when you lose a step in this sport, uh, you can get hurt too. You can start to get. You, I mean, he, yeah. he can at least walk off the field, and it sounds like all the marbles are there, and you know, there's going to be some aches and pains from those injuries. But he's a guy who can probably move on with the rest of his life and enjoy the rest of his life rather than sticking around a few more years and getting the snot beat out of him. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, here's an individual who's, you know, rather proud, has had an illustrious career, and I can almost, you know, guarantee that he wasn't going to play for nothing. You know, if you're going to put your body on the line, especially at that age, that you're going to want something for it, and I just don't think teams out there were willing to, to do that. So the Ticats go to Saskatchewan last week. Probably, I think most people expected they probably should have won that game. Uh, I think you probably think they should have won that game. If I recall hearing from the fifth quarter, most people Mm -hmm. thought they should have won that game. By the way, fifth quarter will be coming up with Rick after the game today here on 900 CHML. So now they come home. Everyone figures that Hamilton is going to win this game. Are they going to win this game? (sighs) Uh, Sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they they should, but, you know, I I, I said before the, the last game a couple of weeks ago, that they should, and they should have. But, you know, when the chips were down, they just didn't execute. They didn't get touchdowns. You know, they got a bunch of yards between the, the 10s or the 20s. But, I mean, if you're settling for field goals, which they did five of them instead of touchdowns, you know, that's going to change the complexity of the game. And Saskatchewan has a, a really good all-around defense. I really like their front seven. And they just made more plays and, and uh, you know, scored the touchdown when they needed to to, to go up 7-6. And that really changed the game that Charleston Hughes fumble recovery for a touchdown made it seven six Saskatchewan gave them new life. Ryderville was going nuts, so uh, I'm expecting a very different result tonight. I think the Tie Cats, you know, I want to say learned their lesson, but I think they can make the adjustments necessary to score some touchdowns tonight. Here's what I don't understand: the Tie Cats have. And I think you and I both agree that the Ticats have a deep team. They got a talented team this year. They've shown signs that they can be a very, very good team. And they've had this, though, for a number of years now. And what I don't understand about this Hamilton team, and we're going back now 20 years, probably to the last Grey Cup in 99, which was the last time they finished probably more than two or four games over 500. Why can this franchise never string together a huge streak of wins like other teams, other really good, talented teams do. Why does this team, no matter who's at quarterback, no matter who's at receiver, no matter who's on defense, 
always find a way to tell the same story, and that is, oh, they should have won that one. In the end of the year, it's 10 and 8 or 11 and 7, and you go, oh, but they should have won four more games. Why can they never do it? It, it? You know what? It's the most befuddling question because I've asked myself that time and time again after each game where I thought, okay, this is going to be a win. This is an opportunity for them to put their flag in the, uh, you know, in the field to say, okay, this is our home turf or this is our game. We're going to conquer and get the W. Their, their last really meaningful winning streak was a five-game winning streak back in 2016. So we're talking you know, two full seasons ago, really, because it happened midway through the year. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not sure what, what the issue is because they have, as you said, they have the talent both on offense and defense that have always very good special teams units. Um, for whatever reason, there's a, there's a bump in the road that they just cannot hurdle um, and, and tonight's another opportunity. I mean, if they come into this game and they think that, you know, if we play as good as we did the last game, we should come out with a win. But it doesn't necessarily work that way. I mean, they, they have to, when the opportunities present themselves, have to execute. And, and that, that doesn't mean get field goals. That means get touchdowns. Now, if you're settling for field goals instead of TDs, you know, any coach in this league is going to look at that and say, no, that's, that's the reason why we lost. So they have to, uh, you know, bring their A game tonight. They cannot take this Rough Riders team for granted. The puzzle to me, though, Rick, and you hit on all the points, but the puzzle to me is when we talk about going back to 99 when they won the Great Cup, and that was the last probably dominant standings-wise, numeric-wise, all those kind of things, the last dominant team, they've had seven, eight different head coaches, innumerable assistant coaches and coordinators, endless numbers of different players. Like, It's not like it's the same group that struggles with the same thing. It doesn't matter who you put in black and gold. They seem to have the same struggle. It's a, it's a truly head-scratching scenario. Yeah, it's super mind-boggling because, uh, you know, you, you look at the matchups, you look at where they're playing, uh, you know, whether or not penalties are a factor, you know, you throw all those kind of equations and factors into the mix. And, you know, the, the same result keeps happening. They'll, they'll win a couple of games in a row and they'll lose one or two or three in a row. And then they'll win one and then lose another two. It's for, for whatever reason, uh, you know, this team just can't seem to solve that. And I'm not sure if anyone really has the reason. It might <laughs> just be one of those things where it's in the DNA it's happening to this franchise. Yeah. And, I don't know if the players are conscious of that. I think when they look at the end of the year, man, we're around 500 again, or just under, or just over. I think they must look at that and say, why can't we be four or five games above 500? Why, why can't we be 12 and six instead of eight and 10 or 10 and eight? It, it To me, it is a, an absolute baffler. And it's a, especially because they go into Edmonton, where Edmonton with that, that time earlier this year was the number one ranked team in the league. Everyone goes, Edmonton's great. Edmonton's going to win the Grey Cup already. Edmonton. Now, I know they had some injuries. Hamilton goes in and destroys them against everybody's predictions. And then last week again with Saskatchewan, where everyone said, well, Hamilton will win this one. They lose it. So today... I'm fearful to say Hamilton <laughs> should win because that may yeah. be the kiss of death for this team. I don't know what this means. Uh, this is this is a flip of the coin team week after week. They have the talent to do it every week. I'm convinced of that. They have the talent to win every game this year. I'm just not ever sure what's going to show up. The the I'm not sure if the word scary is is the appropriate word, but the scary thing is you know this team could easily be four and zero. Yep. Um, they, I mean, they, they, they should be two and two, and, and that's probably, you know, a record that I, w- I would have taken certainly at the start of the season. But, you know, Calgary did not play the best of games in game number one. 
even though, you know, I, I think they deserve that victory. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Hamilton steamrolled the Eskimos. They pretty much dominated the Blue Bombers up until, you know, the last quarter of that ball game. Uh, they should have beaten Saskatchewan last week. They, they, they legitimately should be 3-1. and one. I would give them that record tops. But they could be 4-0. Oh. That's the most frustrating thing with this franchise is that they just can't seem to blaze out of the gate. Uh, and, and dominate, you know, two, three, four, five opponents in a row. At least we haven't seen it in a few years. So it'll be interesting tonight because both teams are coming off a bye week. We know what happened a couple of weeks ago. This Ticats team should be, should be, I say again, <laughs> the hungrier team tonight to, to want that W. I'm not exactly sold on Saskatchewan's offense because of the quarterback quandary that they have. Um, so we'll see. I mean, the, the Ticats still got to come out. And as I said, they got to play their A game. Now, as we all are in the media, I am contractually obligated to ask you if tonight is the night that we will see Johnny Manziel take any downs. <laughs> you know what? I was on Bill's show earlier today, and I said, I'm not sure if this is breaking news or not, but I, you know, my gut tells me that they have, coming off a of bye week, um, knowing where they are in the standings, tied first with Ottawa, I have a feeling, a gut feeling, I don't have any you know, intel or uh, or inside knowledge. No one has kind of said, hey, you know, this is going on. But I just have a feeling there's a package for him that might be instituted tonight. I wouldn't be surprised, maybe not at the start of the game, but maybe towards, uh, you know, the, the start of the second quarter. If things aren't translating the way June Jones wants to see on offense, they might say, okay, Johnny, we have this package for you. Let's change gears a little bit. You go out, work uh, these few plays, and then we'll come back with Masoli and see how that uh, progresses. So, I have a feeling. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to happen, but we might just see number two. What is the response in the stadium if all of a sudden he comes running out off the sideline? Well, it'll depend on the score of the game. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying they're going to do this if they're down 31 to nothing in the second quarter. I mean, they could be up, you know, let's say 15 to to, to seven, and uh, they want to just give the Riders something different to think about on defense because Saskatchewan's D. Uh, you know, is uh, are monsters in terms of forcing turnovers. Uh, they're dominant in field positions. They lead the league in two and outs. Um, I I think that Jim Jones uh, is going to you know tap Manziel on the shoulder to say we need a we just need a, a switch of gears. We just need to put a seed of doubt or a seed of apprehension in Saskatchewan's defense, and and that I think would do it. But do you don't think the crowd would lose their minds? Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, they uh, whether it's pent up kind of uh, excitement. They, they know he's still on the team. They're itching to see what he can do. They haven't seen him since the preseason. So I think if he did come out, uh, whether they're winning or losing, yeah, I think there's going to be a positive reaction because there's that, that interest uh, amongst the fan base uh, that everyone's asking themselves, you know, how effective uh, can he be? And can he be that dominant guy we saw at Texas A&M? Or is he going to be kind of that, uh, you know, uh, guy who really can't really execute the plays? Uh, as he did at Texas A&M, like he did uh, with the Cleveland Browns in the NFL. So I think this fan base is trying to see what he's all about right now. He's being a good boy off the field, which is obviously a huge part of the equation, but now they want to see if he can play the Canadian game. If he steps on the field, first of all, down at ESPN headquarters, 14 people (laughs) are going to have an aneurysm simultaneously, and there's red flashing lights that are going to stop all programming at ESPN across North America to go to this. But the other thing I wonder about, I really believe that if Johnny Menzel, just because of the excitement, because of all the hype, everything else, the place will go nuts if Johnny Menzel runs out. There will be a slow buzz, and then there will be an explosion. And I really wonder what Jeremiah Mazzoli will think 
when he hears that. Because if he's on the sideline not going in, he will hear the reaction. I would love to know what would go through his mind after he's put up all these 300-yard games if the guy who hasn't played a down runs out and everyone's like, this is the greatest thing ever. I think i got to believe that would sting. I would guess that, you know, he's a calm and cool and collected individual. Outside. That probably roll off his back, but... I have a feeling there might be a Daryl Strawberry Simpsons episode moment that he would have a tear come down his cheek because he might realize that it's the beginning of the end. <laughs> well, yeah, especially if Manziel were, and again, we don't know, we're just, but if he were to come out and do something, yeah. Uh, yeah, Jeremiah Mazzoli might trip him when he comes off the field just to, uh, <laughs> oh, darn, he sprained his ankle, I got to go back. And No, he wouldn't do that. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, listen, we will see because at some point, at some point, they've got to put him into a game, surely, because you can't have him just stand there all season on the sideline. I, I don't think. Right. I, I don't think that's how it works, is it? No, I would think that the game plan is to, because you've invested, especially some pretty significant dollars in a backup quarterback, that at some point of the year, you know, they're going to throw him out there, whether it's a blowout uh, you know, en route to a victory or they're getting their doors blown off, or as I mentioned tonight, you know, a certain situation where June Jones wants to you know, switch it up a little bit. I, I think it's only a matter of time, and I think it's obviously going to happen sooner rather than later because he's been he's had a full training camp. He's had uh, you know a month and a half, almost two months now of, of live action and seeing how the game works, the, the time clock, uh, the, you know, the calls from the sideline, everything that comes in. I think that I think he's more than ready to step in, and whether he's effective or not, I, I don't know. But I think he knows enough of the playbook, the cadence, the plays, what to expect that he can go in there and uh, we'll see what he can do. Is Bob Obilovich there tonight? Uh, I haven't seen him. Well, because I was going to say, I wouldn't expect so, but if he was, that's the key, because it's the Joe barnes Conridge holloway situation. That's your tip-off. <laughs> if you there see you Obilovich, go. he's been in secret communications with the Cat folks, and that's what's going to happen. But If I see him, I'll call ESPN myself. Rick Zamprin <laughs> will let you get to the game. They're kicking off shortly. We will see. Uh, listen, enjoy the game. Fifth quarter with Rick. Right after the game here on 900 CHML, you can call in and believe me, if Johnny Manziel plays, uh, Rick, you may never get out of here. You may have the seven-hour fifth quarter episode if he gets into a game. I'm, I'm we we might go all the way to the uh, next game. Yeah, till the next yeah. game. Just tell Ted Michaels <laughs> to sleep in. Stay home, Ted. There you go. Fifth quarter is going on. Rick, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. You got it. Anytime. We will uh, we will see if that happens today, tomorrow. I don't know. I mean, he's going to get into it. First of all, let me back up for a second. First of all, I know there are endless people saying, why do you insist on talking about Johnny Manziel? I'll tell you why we do. First of all, we don't do it all the time. Second of all, the moment he gets into a game, it is a big news story. I don't care. It is. It is. And the reality is whether he fails or he succeeds, it's a big news story. And at some point, he's going to get in. And I think Rick may be right. Coming out of a bye week, when you've had an extra week now of practice and you could have a small play package for him to come in with, I I think Rick Rick is a pretty intuitive guy on this. Rick is a very smart football guy. I would not at all be surprised if tonight was the night that Johnny Manziel got his first night. Not for the full game, not for any extended period necessarily, but we will see. At some point, we're going to be surprised. We will be surprised. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been chatting about the Brady Bunch home that is on sale in Los Angeles, in studio near Studio City, 
California. It is actually, now, to, to know where it is, and we're getting the agent, he's just joining us in just a minute. We're just pulling him out of a meeting, actually. Uh, to understand where it is, there's a lot of famous homes that have been shown on TV shows and stuff. This home is very close, actually, if you look on a map, to the Hollywood sign, as it turns out. And I believe, and I'm not all that familiar with the Los Angeles area, but when it talks about the Los Angeles River, remember in the show, in the movie Grease, when they had the car race in that spill-off area? I believe that's kind of where it backs on to as well. It's just in the middle of a neighborhood. 1.885. Would you buy it? Would you buy it for one point, a, a famous home like this for $1.885 million? I know that just recently the home from Home Alone was sold. Beautiful home in the Chicago suburbs. These homes, uh, somehow the Amityville Horror Home. Now that's one, I don't know if you'd be able to sell it. That's one that I would think you'd have a tougher time with a home where people walked into it and they suddenly felt like the place was completely haunted and that you were going to be slaughtered when you stepped into that home because that's what you'd seen before. But here is, is he, Will, is he there? I'm here. Oh, there you go. How are you, sir? Thanks for doing this today. We're talking to uh, Ernie Carswell, who is the real estate agent who is handling this. Ernie, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. I'm very happy to talk about this property, which is so beloved across America and really the world representing so much of what was a snapshot of American pop culture in the early 70s. What kind of response have you had since it went up on the market? Oh my gosh. Well, it hasn't even been 24 hours and we're hearing from pretty much all continents so far. <laughs> uh, maybe we've not heard from Antarctica yet, but Give it time. Uh, we're hearing from Europe and from the Far East and of course, all of our uh, main cities in the United States and you. And um, we're just really pleased. Uh, and it's an outpouring, I think, of true affection. In the summer, we're here, we're seeing a lot of discouraging news on a global scale, um, and maybe some sad news here and there about crises or tragedies around the world. When you say the words, the Brady Bunch, the person that hears that just can't help but smile or chuckle. So it brings a moment of, uh, you know, levity and happiness to whoever hears it or speaks it. And I'm happy to be a part of that. And this house does represent that. Ernie, had you ever been to this house? Had you ever been by this house? Had you seen it before they called you up to be the agent? I'm so sorry. Um, Say that again. I'm had, so sorry. No, no. Had you been by this house? Had you seen this house before they asked you to be the agent and you went to do the listing? Oh, yes, I had. Because it's a, um, you know, it's on the Hollywood Star Tour. So dozens of people come by this house every day of the year with their star maps to see where the Brady Bunch family lived on their television show. And um, so it's a known house here locally or uh, from the Star Tour setup, for were, sure. Were you, though, just as curious as everyone else when they asked you to list it, when you finally got to go inside and take a look and see what it looked like inside? I was very curious. Um, and it was also immediately apparent, oh, the, the family show that I saw called the Brady Bunch did not occur inside these walls. <laughs> Very different inside the house because, uh, you know, it's uh, it's period accurate. 
so it looks just like things looked in most middle-class America homes in the suburbs in the 70s, but it did not look like the TV show interiors because that was all filmed on a soundstage. You mentioned about the tourists, that people come by there all the time. Have you heard from any of the neighbors now that it's for sale, now that someone else is going to get it? And I know there have been talk about developers or whatever else. Do the neighbors want this thing to stay there or would they be just as happy if someone were to knock this down and build something else just to quiet the neighborhood down again? No, I think the neighbors are very pleased with the house as it has been. They've acclimated to the constant traffic. Um, People are respectful. It's a residential neighborhood. It's not being on Hollywood Boulevard in a very touristy area. This is a quiet residential neighborhood. And for the most part, the tourists are respectful of that. They just take their pictures and move on, you know. So neighbors would like it to remain that way, I believe, if I was a neighbor of this house. Um, But uh, there's plenty of development opportunity in this area. You know, our real estate market in Los Angeles is still quite strong. Uh, There's a lot of active development Uh, We've run out of room. Mm. So developers would certainly find this attractive, but I feel it's going to go to someone who is a preservationist. I was called by a celebrity today, a name that you would know, um, and they'll be there tomorrow to see the property, and they're interested in just buying it and maintaining it as an investment, uh, maybe leasing it out, but just to preserve it. And that, I think, is what please many people, especially the fans. Sure, absolutely. And Ernie, we only have 30 seconds left, but I'm surprised. We were talking before you came on. I'm kind of surprised that this is not a designated property anyway, that there hasn't been some sort of designation that would prevent that. Is it easy? Does that happen in Los Angeles much with some of these very, very famous homes that they ever get protected? We do, and we have protected uh, particular homes, but there's a big process, uh, a long, protracted process you have to go through. This house may undergo that, but uh, the family that owns it now is interested in selling it. Ernie Carswell, who is the real estate agent who is selling the Brady home, uh, you can look it up online. Just type in Brady Bunch House. There are about 5 million stories that have already been written today and videos and everything else. Uh, You're absolutely right, Ernie. This has exploded, and we really appreciate you taking a few minutes today to join us. Happy to do it. Thank you so much. It is, uh, and by the way, if you go on to one of those uh, online stories or to the listing, because all the stories will link to the official listing, you can see the pictures from inside and... uh, just see what he's talking about. It does not look like when Mike and Jan were running the house there with Alice, but fascinating stuff. And if I had 1.885 million, I don't know, maybe I'll move Will down in there to look after it for me. He can deal with the tourists. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.